This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. What a privilege and an honor it is to be up here with you today to study a portion of God's Word. As we were singing uh, the song Jason led, uh, we were singing, uh, I'll believe whatever the cost. And, you know, when you're going to speak, sometimes you want to preserve your voice. But I felt like I'm going to sing whatever the cost. So uh, my voice uh, feels a little ragged right now. But boy, it's just been wonderful singing to the Lord this morning. I just love coming together and singing with y'all. You ask my family, that's really the number one thing I like to do. I may be a little weird in that. I'd rather sit and sing songs with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ than do just about anything else. Because it just fills you with the joy of the Lord. You're glorifying the Lord. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. The uh, text for the lesson this morning, it's up on the board there, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Wherefore, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. With regard to our desire to give glory to God, theologian John Piper says the following. He says, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world that our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. Have you ever thought about why God is glorious? Certainly there are myriad examples of His glorious nature throughout the Bible, and we could spend many, many sermons talking about the various attributes of God. Many of those things would have to do with what God has done for us personally, or the love He has shown us, and those are indeed glorious things about God. God shows us justice, mercy, and love all at the same time. That would be hard to do for us. But what is it about God that makes Him glorious even to somebody who doesn't really know Him? Or accept Him. What exactly is it about God that makes Him glorious? Worthy to be glorified. Irrespective of what He may have done for us on a personal level. I believe it is important to study this because, you know, it bears reminding that God has been worthy of glorification by us since the very beginning. Before He saved any one of us, He was worthy. Before He established our nation... He was worthy. Before He gave us the Bible, He was worthy. Before He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, He was worthy then too. Before He established the Davidic throne, He was worthy. Before He called out and established the nation of Israel, He was worthy then too. Before He saved Noah from the worldwide flood, He was worthy. Indeed, before He created mankind, He was even then Worthy to be glorified. My point is that God's glory does not hinge on mankind, our history with Him, or what He's done for us or not done for us. God is simply, purely, totally worth all glory. So what is glory? In the Greek, it is dignity, honor, praise, worship. You're talking about what you give when you say, I give glory. That's the primary word they use. In the Hebrew, it's kabod. 
and it means splendor or copiousness. This is talking about the attribute of God. A a synonym to copious would be superabundance. So in other words, God is superabundantly splendid and magnificent. He is so special, so mighty, so awesome that He deserves, yea, demands all the dignity, honor, praise, and worship that we can heap on Him. can never be too much. But as I look around the world... I see people spitting in the face of God, not worshiping Him. Sometimes, sadly, even as I look upon those who claim to worship and serve Him, I don't always see a burning desire to glorify God in this life. And indeed, as I look at my own life, I see that there are times when I get so caught up in the routine of life and my goals, my struggles, my successes, my failures, my wants, my desires, that sometimes I don't do all things to the glory of God. Now, I regularly ask people who are seeking a career when they're seeking a position with the entity that I represent, and far too often the reply they give is, well, I'm looking for money, I'm looking for prestige, I'm looking for travel, education, you know, something like that. But what I'm looking for is a great, is a recognition of the great worth that is to be found in working with my team. I'm looking for someone to say, I'm seeking a place on your team because I can see no better way to use my time. I can think of no greater honor than to serve with you. I'm looking for someone to say, I see such worth that I can't imagine not contributing myself. And so it should be with giving glory to God. We should seek to glorify God in every aspect of life because there's simply no other suitable response. How can we be faced with the greatness of God and not want to lavish our love upon Him? Our adoration, our praise, our worship. How can we not want to give everything we have to brag on Him, to elevate Him, to do Him honor? And yet, despite my knowledge that it should be that way in my life, I must admit that I don't always live in that way. I think we all find ourselves facing that reality from time to time even if we wish in our hearts that it were otherwise. So I want to challenge you this morning to really ask yourself as we go through this, am I doing all things to the glory of God? Giving God the glory is something that is worth returning our attention to from time to time. For some, it's a basic subject. But I think for all, it's a daily important subject. And this morning, I want to look at how we can do better. Do more. Do everything we possibly can to glorify God in everything that we do. So let's first identify some of the reasons why God is worthy of glorification of us. This is not meant to be a definitive list, but I intend to point us to just a few things that are inherent to God's nature. They're not contingent upon anything He's done for us. These are just facts about God that just are. First of all, God created all things. Psalms 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. He upholds all things. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. Colossians 1.17 And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. God knows all things. Isaiah 40, verse 28 Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord... The creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. 
God is in all things. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 23-24, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see of him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? His glory can't be borne by mortal man. If you look in Exodus 33, verses 18-23, through you'll see Moses asking to see God. He says, Show me your glory, Lord. God says, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. But I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts. But my face shall not be seen. He couldn't even look upon him. And his glory changes those upon which it lights. Exodus 34, 29. Again, Moses, he'd been up on the mountain talking to God. He was getting the Ten Commandments. And while he was there, he didn't realize his face had started to shine as he was subjected to the glory of God. And it says that when he went down and when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come nigh to him. Scary thing to see what the glory of God was doing on the face of Moses. They had never seen anything like it. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all... With open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Six things that are just so about the Lord. Six things that don't, nothing compares to it. There's nothing else that exists that is like what I just said, these six things. God is infinitely worthy of glory. And these are just a few things. He's glorious because who He is. Not because of what He's done. Because of who He is. We're repeatedly called on to give God the glory. Give God the glory. To do all things to the glory of God. To live in such a way that brings glory to God. It's all throughout the Bible. So this morning, what I most want to examine is just... How can we better glorify God in our lives? And I'm going to touch on six simple principles that will determine whether or not we live our lives to the glory of God. And in so doing, I hope that we can show this world just how powerful the working of Christ is in our lives and how God is the one who deserves all the credit. First, I'd like us to consider the company that we keep. It either does or does not bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupts good manners. I want to share with you an article from Duke University and Duke Magazine. It's about DNA. If you don't know what DNA is, it's basically your programming. It makes you who you are. While the sequence of DNA may not be affected by your environment the way genes work, called gene expression, can. Think of DNA as a computer's hardware. There may be several types of software programs that can regulate what the hardware does. Epigenetics is the study of heritable changes in gene expression that don't involve changing the underlying DNA, but effectively software changes that can alter how your DNA functions. Environmental factors such as food, drugs, exposure to toxins can all cause epigenetic changes by altering the way molecules bind to DNA. These structural changes can result in slight changes in your gene activity 
And they can produce even more dramatic results by switching genes on when they should be off, or vice versa. These changes are heritable, meaning they can be passed on from parent cell to daughter cell and from parent to child. An extraordinary study of survivors of the Dutch famine during World War II, for example, has shown that the effect of epigenetic changes caused by hunger didn't necessarily show up in their children, but surprisingly it showed up in nearly all of their grandchildren. This perhaps suggests that the adage should not merely be you are what you eat, but you are what your grandparents ate. And that's the end of the article. The interesting takeaway here is that science is proving the concepts that are in the Bible. What we see here is that our environment, the things we are subjected to, the things that we deal with on a daily basis, that we consume and ingest, they have an effect on us at our deepest level. What we take in, what we expose ourselves to regularly, to include people and habits, they will change us over time. And they will sometimes even bear themselves out in our children and grandchildren. Did you know that the Bible says the sin of the father will not be visited on the child and so on, but the curse of the sin of the father will impact the children and grandchildren for generations to come. Did you know that? How we live, what we do, it matters to us and our progeny. You cannot immerse yourself in sinful choices, sinful company, sinful environments, and not begin to take on that same corruption yourself. It will seep into your pores, and it will begin to change you at your deepest level. Evil communications corrupts good manners. Instead, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to surround ourselves with like-minded Christians. That has the effect of iron sharpening iron. And if you know anything about sharpening iron, if you use anything else, it has the effect of dulling the blade. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, from the Amplified Translation, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you a wicked, unbelieving heart which refuses to trust and rely on the Lord. A heart that turns away from the living God. But, here's the important part, continually encourage one another day, every day, as long as it is called today, and there is an opportunity to do so, so that none of you will be hardened into settled rebellion by the deceitfulness of sin. What is the deceitfulness of sin? It's cleverness, delusive glamour, and sophistication. None of us would sin and inject, inject poison into our veins, which is all sin is, if we saw how ugly and nasty it was. But sin doesn't ever look that way initially, does it? God said from the very beginning, that it is not good for man to be alone. And so he started and established relationships with others from the very beginning. Those relationships, for good or bad, will influence us. Family is not always a good influence. Your closest friends are not always a good influence. Your boyfriend or girlfriend is not always the right influence, and on the list goes. Your professors at school, not always a good influence. The people you associate with virtually through the internet and your phone are not always a good influence. And Paul is desperately imploring us to don't let that be what guides you. It will corrupt you. 
It will ruin you. And you will not know it. You see this picture up here? These other apples sitting right there by that rotting thing. They think they're okay. The integrity of the skin is intact. They're crisp. But you know what? The corruption in that one rotten apple is spreading right now. It's boring a hole in the sides where it's touching. It's creating maggots and worms. We have to pay attention of how we live our lives, what we associate with, what we put into our lives. Second, it takes me to my next point, which is, you know, we glorify God or don't based on how we use our time. Most of us will have heard that time is short, it's our most valuable resource, and so on. We've heard that so much, it's cliche, and we don't hear it anymore. But if you're like me, especially when you're younger, these statements, they don't really always have the impact they should. I was just talking with Charity the other day, and I was thinking, I was saying, you know, I'm unhappy with the decisions I made when I was a young man because they weren't thought through, they were foolish many times, but in the back of my head I always thought, you know, 20 years from now, it's a long way off, it'll work its way out. I don't know how. It'll all just bumble itself together, and then 20 years shows up, and guess what? It hasn't worked itself out. It went down a path maybe I didn't intend. Time is short. What we do with it matters. So I've gathered um, some statistics here. What these represent are the time an average person living into their 70s spends on various things. This is not a complete list, but it's sufficient for our purposes today. Women spend 136 days getting ready in their lifetime. Men spend 46 days dressing up. We spend three years washing clothes. 115 days laughing. Cheer up, people. That means we spend only six minutes a day laughing. If you're unfortunate like me, you might spend less than that. We spend 27 days waiting for transport. Seven years lying awake in bed waiting to fall asleep. We spend four years talking on the phone at work, and that does not count the work calls you're taking at home. We spend five months of our lives complaining. People complain about bad service every day for about eight minutes. That's five months of your life spent complaining. We spend 26 years sleeping. 26 years. 38 hours annually are spent in traffic. 11 years are spent watching TV. That counts for more than half of your leisure time. If you calculate four hours a day, people spend about 11 years in their lifetime sitting in front of what this survey called the idiot box. We spend 10.3 years working. That's right. We spend less time working than we spend watching TV. We spend four months shaving. Did you know a child born in 2013 will have spent an entire year of his or her life sitting in front of a screen of some sort by the time they turn seven? Parents. That's a year of your child's life. We were guilty of that with our kids. We caught on eventually, but boy, what a struggle it's been to rein that sucker back in. After introducing screens, computers, virtual parenting, that's all that garbage is. Did you know the average teenager sends 100 texts a day? Now, I just have to say, this is what the survey said, but I watch Aubrey and the youth in this church, and it's definitely more than 100 texts a day. It's more like 5,000, I think, but, you know, glad you're talking. We spend 4.4 years eating. That's 38,003 hours 
of your life spent eating. We spend five years surfing the internet, one year deciding what to wear, two years in meeting, a year and a half on hairstyling, 6.3 hours of gaming per week, 17 years dieting. That's 17 years spent trying to correct another bad decision. We spent our time to all that time eating, right? 150 times a day we check our phones. That's every six and a half minutes. Every six and a half minutes, like an addict, we got to check our phones. 93% of Americans, or I'm sorry, most, the average American spends 93% of their life indoors, according to the EPA, either inside a building or a car. Interesting. Eight and a half years are spent shopping and 11 hours of digital exposure a day. That's uh, any form, digital media, computers, mobiles, TVs. Now take note of something. I did not once mention worship, church, ministries, charitable service, etc. How, how much time does the average person leave to simply give time to God and His pursuits? I'm not saying that all these things are necessarily bad uses of your time. Although some certainly can be. But what I'm saying is that much of our lives are already mapped out right here. And how many of these things ended up bringing glory to God in some way? Any of them? Our time is short and our schedules seem pretty full according to this, don't they? And many of these things, they are indeed a necessary part of life. We're going to find ourselves engaged in a lot of these things no matter what. Which is why it is so important that we spend our time wisely doing all things unto the Lord. Do you start to understand why God told us that in the Bible? Do all things as unto the Lord because, brothers and sisters, you're not going to have much time for anything else if you don't. James 4 verse 14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You know, the interesting thing about this verse, if you ask a person in the world, what does that verse mean to you? They will very often say it means, well, life is short, so make the most of it. Carpe diem, which is Latin for seize the day. But I submit to you that at best that only grasps part of what this verse has to offer. For you see, James elaborates in the surrounding verses that yes, our life is short, but the important thing to note is that we don't have control over it. God does. We don't control its duration. And so, with God in control and controlling the duration and us having no knowledge or say so in the matter, we better utilize our time with the glorification of God in mind. Paul builds mightily on this line of thought in Ephesians 5, 15-21. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. You know all that talk I'm always doing about singing? And so I'd love to spend my time doing it. I guess Paul felt the same way because of all the things he could have directed us to do with our time, one of the primary focuses was psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Let's examine that word circumspectly. That is the only place in the New Testament that word is used. It means diligently and perfectly. It comes from another word that means most exact, most straightest, according to Strong's. In other words, Paul's telling us, focus like a laser beam. Focus with perfect precision as we walk in this life. We have to do this because the days are evil. The world is evil. Our surroundings are evil. Our circumstances will oftentimes accommodate not good, but evil. And if we're not paying attention, we'll fall into what our circumstances accommodate. We can't let our focus rest on corrupt things, on crooked paths. We have to set the tone of our minds through singing and praising God. This will enable us to spend our time serving others rather than ourselves. This is the diligent and perfect use of our time. The outpouring of our hearts will always be what we spend our time consuming and doing. So let that expenditure of time be spent in glorifying God. The third thing is what we choose to worship. <clears throat> you know, when you consider the expenditure of our time, worship is one of the clearest ways in which we give glory to someone or something. The primary word for worship in the Old Testament is shaka, which means to bow yourself down, crouch, fall down flat, humbly beseech, make obeisance, do reverence, make the stoop. It's basically the most anti-American, anti-Western word in the Bible, isn't it? We don't bow. We don't crouch. We don't fall on our face. We don't humbly beseech. I remember growing up watching some people pray, difference in men. On the one hand, you'd have a man, when he'd pray, he would get down on his knees. Old man could barely move. You have another man, a young man like me, you might get this. His head's bowed. It says something about the state of our hearts, in my opinion. Do we fall down flat on our face to God in worship? Now, the primary word for worship in the New Testament is the Greek proskuneo, which means to fawn or crouch to, to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence, adore. Do you know what it means to prostrate? Let me just show you. Like this. I don't know what's on this carpet, but I've seen the kids crawling across it with their shoes. Probably just got all kinds of stuff all over me. But you know what? I don't care. Because I'm going to prostrate myself before the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time you pray, every time you get the chance, you fall on your face. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's about an attitude of worship. And do you prostrate yourself in homage and reverence, in adoration to God in your worship? Or is your worship something else, something shallower? I want you to consider... We are in a constant state of worship towards something in this life. It should be God, but it may be many other things as well. And sometimes those things are hollow and frivolous indeed. For example, according to new data from price comparison engine Flipsy, a typical smartphone, including equipment, usage bills, and apps, cost a staggering $75,000 over a lifetime. Now think for a moment on the amount of time and energy and resources it represents to earn $75,000 from your short life. And we do this 
We make this level of investment in something as inconsequential as a smartphone. And you know what's funny, though, is yet the moment I said that, there are people who think, it's not inconsequential, it's essential. It's just the way the world is now. Why? One simply can't survive without a smartphone. I've got mine sitting on the bench over there, even in, <laughs> in church on Sunday. Why do we do that? I'm not here to talk about smartphones. What I want to get you thinking about, where are your priorities? What do you really worship? What are you investing in? You know, when somebody says to me, like, for example, that smartphone, indispensable, and the way we use it cannot be changed. Is that statement really true? Are temporary things like that so truly important that we must figuratively bow down before them to a system that says we must invest in them this way? This is one of the most, you know, it's funny. This right here has become more controversial for some people than marriage and divorce now. Think about that. You get people more up in arms telling them they spend too much time on their phone than you will having a discussion about whether or not it's right to divorce. That's a sad state of affairs. These are hard things to face. But understand, God desires all of our worship, and we're not going to be successful in trying to convince God that He received less because the world was set up so that we had no other choice. Let me stress that point. Please hear me. Someday, you and I will give an account of time spent and worship given. Even that worship that we gave and we didn't realize it was worship, or we denied that it was worship, we're going to give an account of that to God. And He will not be convinced by our best arguments about why we were right to give something of His to anything else. We have to give the glory to God. You know, I've spoken on idolatry in the past, and I've pointed out idolatry is anything that you give more love, time, resources, and attention to than God. In the end... Idolatry always comes back to worship of self. We're always giving our devotion to something. But when that something is anything other than God, it is because we are exalting ourselves, our wisdom, our desires, and our ways above God's. And God is not going to accept excuses about that. We have to be honest with ourselves. I say this not to be critical. You know, sometimes people... They use the pulpit as like a bully pulpit. That's certainly not my intention. I love you. I know you love me. I know there's people that love all of us. And they want to see us living in a way that is pleasing to God. And most of all, don't you want to be pleasing to God? Don't you want God to be pleased with how you're living your life? You know, that's why I put this lesson together. Examine my own life. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why do I know a thing and enough time passes by and I'm worshiping something other than God? I'm not giving God glory. My actions don't bring glory to God. We have to be reminded. It's so important. Now, if you think that arguing with God about why He needs to share His glory with us is something that you can win, 
then I want you to see why that's not so in a couple of verses here. Turn with me to Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. It's talking about Satan here. This is the ultimate usurper of God's position. The ultimate idolater. Speaking of Satan, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here we see that the downfall of Satan was his pride. His desire to be exalted above God. He wanted the glory that is acknowledged through worship that belongs only to Almighty God. And for all of Satan's cunning, for all of his strengths, for all of his innate talents that he was created with, this fatal flaw of his always rises to the top. Just like a warped wheel leaves a crooked path, Satan's tactics always leave behind the same twisted signs. Steal God's glory. Exalt oneself. Worship the creature rather than the Creator. He did it with the first Adam. He countered God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by saying, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's Genesis 3, 4-5. through And then he tried to do it with the second Adam, which is Christ. Matthew 4, verses 1-10. through We see when Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted... We know he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry afterwards. Satan starts and says, hey, if you're hungry, make those rocks bread. Don't wait for God to provide for you. You do it for yourself. Jesus says, you'll not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then the devil takes him up into the holy city, Jerusalem, puts him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is the most impressive place in the city of the most holy sought-after city in the world, God's city. Satan puts him up on that pinnacle and says, you know what, if you're the son of God, just throw yourself down. You know God's not going to let you die. He can't because then his will would be thwarted. So just do it. Show him who's in charge. Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then Satan takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them. And he says, I'll give you all of this if you will fall down and worship me. Then Satan gets upset and he says, get, or J, uh, Jesus gets upset and says, get thee hence, Satan. Get out of here. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only thou shalt thou serve. I want you to notice something in these two different examples between the first Adam and the second Adam. Satan always attacks when he thinks he sees an opportunity to exploit a perceived weakness. He attacked Eve and Adam by stoking a hunger for self-exaltation. He attacked Jesus when he'd been fasting and was hungry. And in both cases, Satan tried to get his victim to turn their view upon themselves, to act for themselves, to snatch from the very hand of God. That is what we're doing when we allow anything to take our worship instead of God. Satan tried to build the idea in their heads that God didn't deserve their worship as much as someone or something else, perhaps themselves. Ultimately, Satan's tactic then and now is to get us to forget that God's glory is worthy of 
and demands our exclusive worship. Don't let the devil do that in your life. Worship God, not only here in the assembly of the saints, but in every single detail of your life. And you know, ultimately taking that approach will be taking on the very mind of Christ. Deciding that God will be, uh, <clears throat> be glorified in all aspects of our lives will be making the same decision that Jesus himself did. You may have heard of the mind of Christ before, but what exactly does that mean? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, read verses 3 through 11. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. The mind of Christ is to humbly serve others. Not because we are worthless or less important than another, but because we understand our great value in the purposes of God the Father. When speaking of power, there is raw power. Such as the raw power that's represented by the raging waters of Niagara Falls. You look at that water, how powerful it is coming off that cliff. And then there's actual power, such as the harnessing of those waterfalls to generate electricity. That's usable. Actual power. Now, actual power or truly useful power in a person is when one has the ability to do something but restrains the use of that power of ability. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive to you, it's only because to this old world such thinking is foolishness, but consider the following. Christ believed in the verse we just read that He was not robbing God of something that belonged exclusively to Him by saying He was equal with God. In making such a claim, Jesus was clearly saying He was God. And that He had the same measure of raw power at His disposal. He could have done anything He wanted. And yet, despite being the Creator of the universe, He set His glory aside... He did not demand the honor that was due Him. He did not subdue those people who should have fallen on their faces in front of Him. Instead, He chose to serve them by living the life that He lived, by setting the example that He set, by submitting to the will of the Father, and ultimately, in His great sacrifice upon the cross. That is the mind of Christ. That's servant leadership. Having raw power at one's disposal does not necessarily make somebody powerful. You don't believe that? Consider this. A toddler can have raw potential power if you give him a loaded shotgun. But without the proper application of that power, that toddler may as well not have power at all except by chance. 
They might shoot something, they might not. They might shoot themselves. That's raw power. That's useless power. Unharnessed power. It's the way that we use power, or don't use it, that truly determines the degree of power that we wield. Jesus, this is why he's so magnificent. If you had the power Jesus had, don't tell me you'd go to the cross. You wouldn't, and neither would I. Hoy, you ever play that game Sim City when you were young? I used to, my favorite part was building a big old city up and sending a tornado and an earthquake and fire through it. You know, that's what I would have done. That's what you would have done. You would not have gone to the cross, and don't say that you would have, because that's a lie. Only Jesus could have done that. Only Jesus did do that. He had real power. And he used it by restraining it. You know, God gave you and I a great measure of power too. We have the freedom of choice. Do you realize what power that is? We have freedom to decide how we will spend our time and to whom or what we will render worship. God does not limit us in this regard. You see that freedom of choice? That's your raw power. But when you decide you're going to give your worship to God, when you make that choice, he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. That's actual power. That's real power. God gave that to you. He gave it to me. He's given us a clear choice. He's shown us the magnitude of his innate glory. He's shown he is worthy to be glorified. And we can give glory to something other than God. Ourselves, money, our standing with the people of this world, we have that ability. We have that power. But God would have us glorify Him by the proper use of the power to choose. Worship Him. God wants us to make that decision. He doesn't want it to be forced. And that will require something more than words. It will require more than just a tacit acknowledgement of God's glory. It will require the action of obedience for without faith works I'm sorry, without uh, works, faith is dead. John 14, verses 15 and 21. If ye love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see, belief alone is not enough. Belief alone doesn't give God the glory that he deserves. I cannot stress that enough. If we want to give glory to God, action is required. James 2, 19-22 Ye believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. And then in Romans 6, 18, being then made free from sin, ye become the servants of righteousness. <clears throat> Beloved, we're not set free unto ourselves. We were not set free to glorify our own self-interest. We are servants of righteousness rather than slaves to sin. We've been set free from inevitable uncontrollable sin so that we can choose
to exercise the power we have in Christ to live righteously. In other words, we've been set free to live good lives and do good works in obedience to God's will. Obedience is not an option. Saying you believe in Jesus and not exhibiting the change of your heart simply means you're not saved. You don't have to like that. It's what the Bible says. We have a whole lot of people preaching what's called the sinner's prayer. Just proclaim the name of Jesus and that's it. You're done. No further than disregard all that stuff about what he told you to do afterwards because then he'd be a liar because you'd have to do something. It's complete nonsense, but it's dangerous nonsense because the arguments are formed so well that you could be convinced if you're not careful. God has called us to obedience. Never forget that. And the very first step of obedience after you confess Christ is baptism. It has to happen. It's not an option. Obedience is required. The writer of Hebrews <clears throat> talks a little bit about sin because when you want to talk about obedience, you have to talk about sin. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, <clears throat> let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You see, eliminating sin for the saved Christian, that's a daily choice we have to make. It's not a one-time choice. I repudiate sin, accept Jesus, and that's it. I'll never have to do it again. That is not true. You have to make the choice every day to live in the power of Christ. Because the Bible says that we can be like a dog that returns and eats its own vomit. That's what your sin is. That's what God takes out of you. He purges you, washes you clean with the blood of Jesus, and he, you vomit that filth up. And then you go on your way. What you don't want to do is come back like a dog is wont to do and lap your own vomit up. That's a very graphic illustration. And it's not my illustration. It comes out of the Bible. Why do you think the Bible gives these graphic illustrations? Because he wants you to get it. Wants you to get it. Internalize it. Obedience matters. You have to obey. The world, they don't have this choice. The world has not been given the power to make it. The world has not been made new creatures in Christ. But you and I have. We now have the power to give God great glory by showing this magnificent, transformative power in our lives through Christ by good works, Matthew 5.16, by fruit-bearing, John 15.8, by spiritual unity, Romans 15.6, and by entire consecration of our lives for God, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. Uh, if you weren't here for the young men speaking on the Wednesday, last uh, Wednesday night, Joe, they all three did a wonderful job. Joe, Zach, and Heston. I believe it was Joe who talked a little bit about who we um, are to judge. And basically, the takeaway is we're able to make judgments and exercise church discipline over Christians, but not the world. God will judge the world because they haven't been given that power yet. But once you've been given that power, we are to hold one another accountable. 
to obedience. If we choose, we can glorify something infinitely less, something infinitely less worthy. We can choose to use our power in a sinful manner. We can let our freedom of choice rage and swirl with the same devastating consequences of that raging, rushing, unchecked water of Niagara Falls. We can choose to forfeit exercising the power of Christ in our lives by not setting aside those sinful things that beset us. But instead, let's choose to glorify God and obey. And the final thing that I have for this morning is we must accept Jesus. You know, if you want to give glory, there's no better way to do it than to accept and teach Jesus in this world. Christ is the penultimate expression of God's glory. Realize, the story of Satan can be summed up like this. I'm jealous, I want, I try to take, I fail. So I'm going to break your stuff, God, because I'm mad at you. And God, and by the way, I'm going to break it so bad, and I know how much you like this, God. You're just going to have to start all over. This creation of yours, I destroyed it. And yet God said, no, there are things that I can do that you can't do, Satan, to remedy that, and I'm going to do it. And it's like the most unexpected thing Satan would have ever thought. You're going to yourself send your son to die? You see, Christ is the greatest way to show God's glory to this world. Why did God do it? The Bible says it because he's, He loves us so much. How is it possible He's got that kind of love for us? I don't know. I don't know. But He does. And He did it. And He sent His Son, Jesus. And if you want to really have the greatest impact on magnifying and glorifying God, you go out and you accept and you teach and you live. Jesus you know, Christ said that any man who has seen him has also seen the Father. John 13, 31. These are, this is Jesus talking. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus again speaking. John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus says again, John 17, 4. I have glorified thee. He's talking to God. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And then Peter takes this. And in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, he says, You know, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Precious friends, God is glorified in Christ. In Christ, we are new creations capable of living in such a way that is otherwise impossible. We can be a light to this world. We can do what feels impossible. And in doing so, we manifest God's glory to such a degree that the world will have no choice but to see the great glory of God at work. And they'll have no excuse if they don't respond.
Accept Christ, teach Christ, live for Christ, and in so doing, give great glory to God. So as we come to a close, do you notice something from the, this morning's lesson? <clears throat> the glory of God that is highlighted in the company that we keep and how we spend our time and how we worship and how we obey and having the mind of Christ, it all hinges on just one thing. The transformative work of Christ in our lives. It's a result of His decision to give glory to God by fulfilling the will of the Father. While we were still blind and deaf, Christ led the way. He is the first fruits. He chose the company of God first. He spent His time on this earth in service to God first of all men. He worshipped God the Father even though He is God the Son, was and is worthy of worship. He did that first. He chose to humbly serve first. He obeyed God first. And through Him, God's glory was greatly magnified on the earth and in heaven. Will you give glory to God? Will you do all things for the glory of God? He is worthy. What a privilege to fall on our faces before the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a privilege to glorify the great I Am in how we live our lives. Perhaps you are like me and you've not been doing all things to the glory of God consistently. Perhaps like me, you feel convicted by things in your life. And you know that you can never do too much to honor and glorify God. And you want to do more. That's how I feel about it. Beloved, God is long-suffering and He's calling us to Him now in this moment. Right now. So if you're not yet saved, if you've not yet obeyed the gospel, don't wait another minute to give God the glory that is His due. Confess your sins. Acknowledge your need for Christ. Repent. Confess and obey by submitting to the waters of baptism. Do it today. Don't delay. And if you've already been saved, you know, which is most of us in here, but you've withheld some part of glorifying God in your life, ask Him to forgive you, to encourage you, to strengthen you. Commit to change. Call upon the church to pray with you and for you. If there be one of either case, we ask you to step forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.